These are facts. Mutations do occur. Evolution, for evolution, this is the mechanism that makes evolution work. For the creationist, we see mutations as destructive. So the issue is, is it an adequate mechanism, or does the scientific evidence indicate that they're destructive? And after 160 years of research, we're, we've come to pretty conclusively that this is the case. Destructive nature of mutations. So let me give you in series of numbered conclusions in a moment here. What evolution requires, in order for this to be an adequate mechanism, it requires frequent mutations. Lots of them. In other words, Frequent, in other words, one right after another, and many, lots of them. Also, the majority of them need to be beneficial in order for evolution to work. So you have to have frequent amount, or, or them in frequency, in terms of time, and you have to have a lot of them, and most of them have to be good. The transitional form actually was found. I'll show you one. Transitional form from plant life to animal life. Does anybody know? Hmm? No. There it is. <laughs> Just uh, kind of a humor thing. Okay, number one. <laughs> okay, well, what did we say? They have to be frequent and many. Well, after 160 years, they are actually rare. The DNA is actually amazingly accurate in spelling out all the information that's required to reproduce different cells, and overall, taking into account the total number of cell divisions required in any organism, mutations are very, very rare. In fact, uh, here are the numbers, and these are primarily, like I said, from evolutionary scientists, 1 in 10,000 to 1 in a million gene per generation, you find one mutation, which is rare. Or 1 in 10 million DNA duplications. That's very rare. So, so they're not either frequent or many. Genes and cells and DNA are very accurate in reproducing themselves. Uh, these are not Numbers from creationists, these are numbers as a result of the research. So number one, they're rare. Number two, they are unpredictable. That's the opposite of what the evolutionist requires. He requires predictability. Predictability. Here's another transitional form uh, from modern culture. Where's man evolving to? Any suggestions? If you want to call that God. <laughs> <laughs> evolution. That's your that's your children, girls. <laughs> Another evolutionist by the name of C. H. Maddington says it remains true to say that we know of no way other than random mutations by which new hereditary variations comes into being, nor any process other than natural selection by which the hereditary constitutional constitution changes from one generation to the next. He's basically saying the only thing available is 
mutations, and natural selection. And they're not talking about in kind. They're talking about out of kind. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Because that's what's supposed to make evolution. That's that's evolution. In other words, all this we're talking about to me, it says, well, that's man did not cannot come from an ape because it doesn't work. No. Doesn't. And so what all evolved. Yep. Doesn't work. Doesn't, doesn't work. That's what we're getting at. And this, and I'm just giving you detailed science results. Okay. So can you define natural selection? That's where creatures, the environment puts pressures on creatures to to adapt. Yeah. Yeah. Don't eat Right. Natural selection, the survival of the fittest. In other words, the ones that are fittest, according to evolution, the survival of the fittest. And if these changes continue, eventually they survive in a higher order. So natural selection is considered a small mutation? Well, ultimately it would be across the, across the boundaries. That's, it's what from eventually moves. Kind. Yes. Okay, so from, from kind to kind. Mm-hmm. So, yep. Alright. And I've already said we accept variation. Right. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. Okay, what do they, what does the evolutionists require? That they predominantly be beneficial? Well, they are predominantly harmful. They're predominantly harmful. In fact, another very prominent evolutionist and, uh, microbi- uh, well, let's see, is he a microbiologist? He's probably before the age of microbiology. H.J. Mueller says, most mutations are bad. In fact, good ones are so rare, we can consider them all bad. That's devastating to evolution. And the numbers, he says, well over 99% are bad. Number four, what mutations do to an organism, they impose what biologists call a genetic burden. And this is verified and has been observable. And what that genetic burden is, is that... There's a burden that drags down the genetic quality of a species and or a kind. In other words, the more mutations you have, the more degenerate is that organism. That's the idea. So the accumulation of mutations just degrades and degenerates all species. In, including, yes. Mm-hmm. Because, because of this genetic burden. And that's true of mankind as well. True of mankind. This is an explanation why when Adam and Eve had children, those children had to intermarry brothers and sisters to produce the next generation. And what happens when you have inbred or incestuous relationships? That's why it's outlawed today, because what you have genetic problems, and it's as a result of this genetic burden. Think out into the wild. <laughs> okay. They provide a little diversity. The wives of the queen. They're all brothers and sisters after Adam. There's no problem there because the the gene pool is relatively pure. Yeah, it's relatively pure. In fact, it is still pure, even. Uh, in the Noahic family, where you have, again, a situation where brothers and sisters, or at least cousins, would intermarry. But they got on the boat with their wife, right? Yes. So that's a little... 
Yeah, but they had to, there had to be close relationships there that intermarried and you don't have a problem. It's not till later, as a result of this issue, this problem, this genetic burden, that it's outlawed because of the genetic problems that will be produced by it. So, wasn't there angels that intermarried? That's another, that's another issue. There's at least three views on that. And one of them is an intermarriage between probably angels that indwelt humans. Yeah, that's a real... Yeah, Genesis 6, that's a different... That's a big genetic part of it. That's... <laughs> Enter a different genetic code into it, or because they If you take that view that holds of that, there's there's other views that explain the same data there. We don't know. I'm, I'm not sure we even have the ability to go back and know. Anyway, we're... Talk about mutations here. They're rare, they're unpredictable, they're harmful. It, it, they impose an, a genetic burden on all species, all species, including mankind. Fourthly, we also know that they are pathological. What does that word mean? They're disease-causing. That's what pathological means. In other words, a lot of diseases can be traced to mutations. So rather than producing good things, mutations produce bad things. A lot of diseases, in fact, we think cancer is mutated uh, cells that reproduce very rapidly and kill people. They're pathological, and there's a lot of other diseases that are the result of mutations. Uh, sixthly, there tends to be in any species rejection of those that have obvious mutations. Now, we call some of that Probably an illustration of that is even in the humankind, deformities, people with deformities probably have a harder time finding a spouse or a partner than those that are, quote, normal. Is anyone normal? I'm normal. Everybody else should be like me. <laughs> so, and, and you see that... <laughs> you see that especially in the animal kingdom as well. Uh, the, the animal kingdom, they tend, if there's a deformity, they tend to reject it, and usually the deformed creature dies out, so it doesn't reproduce. And in many cases, they are, they are born sterile as well, depending on the severity of the mutations. Are you getting a trend here? 160 years of mutations... Just doesn't provide what evolution needs. The last one here, seven, there is always in mutations, there's always a loss of information. There's never an increase. And that's what you need. You need an increase of information in order to generate a positive new organ or a new progression uh, towards a new species. But you don't have that. And genetically, now we know this for sure. There's always a loss. It's kind of like a computer code. In fact, DNA is analogous to a computer code. And when you have a mutation, it's basically a loss of information in that computer code. And you know what happens when your your computer loses, your program loses information and your program doesn't work anymore. Same concept, except on a biological, genetic level. Well, that's mutations. Lee Spechner, who is a creationist, he says, in all the reading I've done in the life sciences, sciences literature, I've never found a mutation that added information. So you never add information. 
Conclusion, there's no mechanism for evolution, so there's no starting point for it. There's no scientific explanation as to how evolution produced. Because the only explanation they have is mutations, and 160 years of research says they don't work. All they do is damage. They don't do any good. And all the evidence, as we started off, the evidence is of degeneration. That's what the Bible teaches. Everything is degenerating as a result of the fall. We'll look at that when we talk about Genesis 3. That's the conclusion, 160 years of research. Okay, what I'm going to give you briefly here is kind of a summary of the evidence that the evolutionist offers. This is his evidence. And today it takes, in some cases, different forms, but this is the basic evidence that he gives. If you know of other evidence besides what I present here, I want to know about it because I don't want to be unfair to the evolutionist in my future discussions. So you're saying this is data, this is the first slide you showed no, these are different, these are different areas. These are different areas. I gave you mutations. The next area on your outline sheet, comparative anatomy. This is one of the main lines of argument that they use. And what they mean by that is, and this is true, you, there are similarities in anatomy within categories of creatures. And these similarities are the basis of what the biologist uses to classify. These are the same things that Adam used to give his names, his categories, his categorization. We can make the same observations today. Now, Adam was able to name them. Uh, we just accept the names that, that uh, come down to us. Now, what's important is there are similarities. We don't deny that. We don't deny the existence of these similarities. The issue is how do you explain those similarities, and that's where we radically differ. How do you explain the similarities? And by the way, all of this is superficial evidence, not real hard science evidence. And this is the best that they have that I'm aware of. Here's an example of comparative anatomy. And you could do the same thing. You could put man right here, and we could see the same similarities of some. But I'm using a lion and a horse here. But if you look, and I'm just using the bone structure in this sketch here. But you could do the same thing with the circulatory system. You could do similar with other systems, the blood system. There's similarities. But the bones kind of are easy to visualize. That's why we use the bones. So you can notice there are skull bones in both that are somewhat similar. You know, there's an eye socket in both, a jawbone, etc. There's a neck that runs all the way down through the tail. There's a neck and the spine that goes all around to the tail. Rib cage, four limbs with joints. See, see the similarities? So we don't deny that there are similarities. And man would have all of those. Uh, we have a skull, we have a spinal column, we have rib cage, we have limbs. You can do it on an individual basis. Here's a human arm with a joint, and a joint up here, and a hand, and a cat, similar. Whale, even a whale, a, a mammal. We're dealing with mammals here. It's a little bit different, but it has all the same parts, if you can see by the colors there. A bat, 
which is also a mammal. So we don't deny the existence of the similarity. What the evolution says, similarity of structure implies common ancestry. Common ancestry. What's the answer to that? That's superficial evidence. Well, there's problems. The problems is the evolutionist kind of minimizes the vast differences. Even in the animal kingdom, there's vast differences that make them different. All the way down to the DNA, obviously. There's changing views on relationships. There's always recategorizing as we learn more about organisms. There's what's called convergence. I won't get off on that. We don't have time to explain that. And then divergence, which is kind of the counterpart of that. And the groupings are somewhat arbitrary. Those are the main problems. I'll let you do some reading on convergence and divergence and arbitrary groupings. Well, here's kind of a bottom line. And you can use this slide in all of the evidence. I'll just use it here. If you start off with certain presuppositions, or we might call those assumptions, initial assumptions, you start off with assumption A, and if you're starting from a secular, humanistic worldview, that's presupposition A, that all there is is naturalism, and you're assuming evolution, when you look at the data, you're going to come to conclusions that fit your presuppositions, and you're going to end up with an interpretation of the data that goes in line with your assumptions, A. If you start with a different set of presuppositions, this is why worldviews are so important. If you start off with a biblical worldview, with biblical presuppositions, there is a God, there is a creator, then you have presuppositions B. You look at the same data. The data is the same. You look at comparative anatomy. You, you see those similarities. You also see the differences, and you also see some other issues as well. And what you have added is revelation, so we have more data. We have revelation as well. And the Bible gives us kind of the parameters now. God created in six days. So you look at the same data, you're going to come up with a different interpretation. And this is, the, this is the whole issue. This is what's at stake at every point. Does that make sense? The answer to the comparative anatomy argument there, you can see this, you don't have to be an engineer, but as engineers, we use similar structures in different, or similar parts of structures in different types of structures. For example, engineers will design a column that can support a bridge, and it has similar parts in it. In fact, if it's made out of reinforced concrete, it has concrete, and it has steel members in that concrete, and you design it accordingly depending on the load that that column will take. So you have columns and bridges, but you can't see them, but in, there's probably in that corner there that protrusion there, that's probably a column that supports the next floor, the second floor, and it goes all the way and supports the roof. And it's probably, because of the size, it's probably reinforced concrete, and it has the same elements. It's concrete with steel bars inside of it, very similar to a bridge. The evolutionist is saying one evolved into the other. That's what he's saying in the, the biological level. What we are saying is if you have a common designer, he can use similar members, 
saying it was the same construction well, designer, in this case, designer and creator, the same members, like an arm with joints has similar function in all of those animals, so also a beam has similar functions in a building as in a bridge. That's the answer there. So that's a better explanation. So a common designer, a common creator, chose to use similar structures, arms, limbs, ribcage, etc., for different creatures, because they work, and they function in a similar way, just like a designer or an engineer would design different parts, okay? Okay, I didn't give you the slides on all of the others. Let me real quickly, just very quickly go over some of them. The evolutionist uses what he calls microevolution, and remember, I've already touched on this. What did I tell you? Avoid microevolution. It's a trick. Because if you accept microevolution in some way, the evolutionist has tricked you into saying, well, there is evolution. We accept what he describes as microevolution, but it's not evolution at all. It's variation. And that is observable. That is provable. That You can see that in science. Any study, you can see that creatures change and adapt to their environment. That's variation. Now, what the evolutionist does is he says, okay, now that I've got you tricked into saying microevolution, then the theory says that you can have enough changes such that these small changes that are that you admit exist, and we admit they exist. Now we're going to take this jump, and he just jumps a little bit, but in fact it's a Grand Canyon jump, that none of you can do, right? And he says, if you can prove that there's microevolution, then it's easy to understand that there's macroevolution. That's the trick. And there's no documented evidence for that. It's an assumption, and in fact it's a conclusion that he's made. So the existence of microevolution, we call it variation. And we say no, and in biology today... We recognize boundaries, just like what we saw in Genesis 1. Men, remember? Clear, defined boundaries that creatures don't cross. So that's the micro-macro-evolution argument. They used to use embryology. This has been a, this has been totally discredited, but I still include it because not too long ago, oh, I don't know, 10 years ago maybe, I volunteered to be on a committee that was going to evaluate new books that the public schools were going to use to replace old science texts. And I volunteered for the science part to, to read them and, you know, give a critique on them and make recommendations. And I was surprised, but in some of the books, they still use this embryology argument, which has been totally discredited. And they use the vestigial organs thing, too. I'll explain that in a moment. But embryology, the theory was, and even the evidence that has been presented for this has been demonstrated to be fraudulent. But anyway, the idea is is that the embryo of all creatures goes through past evolutionary stages as it develops in the womb of whatever creature. So your babies went through all these evolutionary stages till it became human somewhere in there. Now you have the end product of a human. 
Well, that's been totally, totally discredited. I'm trying to remember the name of the guy that was the fraud over a hundred years ago after Darwin or same time frame. It'll come to me. Anyway. Anyway, that's, that's just totally discredited. The drawings that he used and he used sketches that he produced uh, have been demonstrated to be fraudulent. That they don't show not only the progression, but we know from DNA and the other things that there's distinctions. Vestigial organs, they used to think and use this as evidence. And you referred to the tailbone of humans. Uh, some of these organs were the remains of past evolutionary changes. And humans don't need a tailbone, so now it's shorter. And we've evolved so that we don't have a tail, basically. And they saw other organs like that. Tonsils were considered to be vestigial organs. Yeah, last century when I was growing up, they were they commonly removed tonsils if they got infected. But today we know, in fact, we know that virtually all of what they consider vestigial organs, they have a very definite use, and they're not there as remains of past evolutionary stages. So that's been discredited. There's a new form of this today, and you might have heard of what they describe as junk DNA. Now, this is at the microbiological level. It's the same argument, except it's at the microbiological level. It's kind of an upgraded evidence. And they, they claim that uh, there's a lot of what's called junk DNA that has no use, and it's just the after effects of evolution. Well, the more we study junk DNA, the more we find out that all of that DNA actually has a function, just like the vestigial organ argument. It's just a different argument. By the way, there's also an updated comparative anatomy evidence that they use. The updated is the DNA of monkeys, they claim, has 95% of the DNA of man. I think that's the number somewhere in there. 95% of uh, DNA in monkeys are also in man and there's only 5% difference. It's the same thing as the comparative anatomy uh, argument. The differences are more drastic, and there's a lot of arguments against that view as well. So they're just updating the evidence, but it's, it's, it's the same argument. It's still superficial, and it's not real evidence. And anthropology, we could spend three hours on it. Anthropology is one of the least scientific of all of the sciences. And there's entire books that, I don't know if I have some of them on your syllabus that you can read on that by creationists that answer all of the issues of the anthropologist. And they're still looking for a missing link. Missing link is never found. What typically happens is they find a set of bones, and from an evolutionary perspective, we found the possibility of the missing link. Now, this happens not only in anthropology, but some of the others as well. So this news flash, and you see a big thing in the news and newspapers, and then six months later, nothing hits the news again because it's it's past and they're dealing with other things. So anyway, six months later, oh, as we study the data, there's some issues with it. There's some problems. Some anthropologists don't accept it, and they look at other evidence and... This is really not a missing link. And that includes all of them. And some of them, 
historically have actually been frauds that were put forth deliberately trying to deceive the public into believing in supposed find of a missing link. So there's a lot that we could look at in terms of anthropology. So that's the superficial evidence. That's basically it in terms of evidence that supports evolution. This is what they supply. And I think there's better explanations. All that evidence. There's also what I would classify as evidence that's destroying, and I put it under the category of support for creation because it not only destroys the theory of evolution, but it also serves to give evidence that supports a creationist view and a creationist worldview. So let's look at some of that evidence. Now, in geology, where we study the fossil record, just so that you know, you can find a chart like this in just about any geology book, high school or college, and what they give you is a chart of what they call the geological column. The geological column does, in fact, exist. In other words, if you want to go out and make an investigation and you dig down or you go to the Grand Canyon, you can see that there are a lot of layers that are laid down and the geologists have given those layers certain names and you can use those names because that's what the literature describes. And the names are given dependent, or the layers are identified dependent on the fossils that are found in them. And probably the best known is this, what's called the Jurassic, mainly because of the movie. In the Jurassic, there are many dinosaurs. That's why the movie is named Jurassic Park, because in that layer, there, or in this particular layer, the way they identify it is if it has a lot of dinosaurs in it, then they call it Jurassic. And each of these has what they call index fossils that distinguishes them from the other layers. So these layers do, in fact, exist on the face of the Earth. In fact, everywhere on the face of the Earth, you have some representation of the geological column. Here's the problem. You have this nice, neat little chart, clear layering, this chart does not exist anywhere on the face of the earth. It is theoretical. It's a composite. These are the representative layers, and at any point on the face of the earth, you may have some of these, but nowhere on the face of the earth you have, I can't remember, I think there's 15 here, 15 layers. A creationist did an extensive study Wood Merapi. In fact, there's a book. I think I've got it on your list. He did an extensive study and did a com computer-generated charts that he put together. Where are these layers represented? And he combined some of them, combined a couple here, and he combined all of these in what's called the Cenozoic layers. He combined all of them. And by combining all these up here and all of these except for two that he combined, he found that only, what was the number? I think less than 5% of the planet 
represents combination of all of these and then the, the rest of those. So there's no consistency there. Oh yeah, no consistency. Right. It, it varies all over the And that's another problem. No. It's another issue, another problem. But the five percent combines all of these into one, but if you leave each one of these individually then it doesn't exist anywhere at all. And you also have some other problems. You have some layers over other layers out of sequence. You have out of sequence layers, and that's not uncommon. Just to give you a feel, and this is true in general on the on the planet, to give you an idea of the thickness of this column, to this Cambrian layer in the Grand Canyon, and many of these are exposed in the Grand Canyon. It's a good place to study these. Now, they give them different names because they name them after formations, but they would correspond to some of these, like there's a Cambrian layer over there in the Grand Canyon. But to give you a, a sense, it's about a mile deep geological column to, to the bottom of the Cambrian. So there's problems with this theoretical arrangement. And this is all theoretical. In other words, their assumption is naturalism, their assumption that all of these layers, now some, probably the majority believe that all these layers were laid down over long periods of time by wind and dust, or wind and sand particles. And what's represented here is the number of years in millions of years. So the Cretaceous layer is 65, took 65 million years to or lay down. Now there are some that believe it was laid down by water, but they're in the minority because it gets too close to another theory. So the Jurassic, 45 million, this, these are pretty standard. These are pretty standard numbers. That's where they began to get the idea. It's from geology and from these ideas in the 1800s where they proposed that the earth is billions of years old because of these layers. And so if you add up these numbers, you end up with billions of years of uh, Earth history, at least for the, the surface there. Well, that's their view, and they take an evolutionary viewpoint in that they say there are simple life forms down here in this Cambrian layer, and then more complex as you go higher. And in general, you see this pattern. In other words, there seems to be, and, and by the way, I've said there's no such thing as simple life form. These are very complex creatures. And this is an important boundary that between the Cambrian and Precambrian. So they would say from the Cambrian up, you have an evolutionary scheme, and it represents evolution. And what Darwin... Uh, Darwin even recognized in his time that his theory was not supported by the fossil record. But he was hopeful that now that this theory is out there, that evolutionary scientists would uh, find in the geological column uh, transitional links such that his theory would be proven. Well, again, since Darwin, 160 years of research, there's, there's no missing links still. There's another and a better, and I'll present this in more detail when we talk about the flood, I'm going to show evidence that probably everything from the Cambrian up was created by the Genesis Flood. So all of this is evidence of destruction, evidence of a flood, not evidence of evolution. 
And when we get there, there's a lot of reasons. We'll talk about absence of fossils below this layer. And also, every one of these layers from the Cambrian above is a certain type of layer. And all of the evidence points to laid down by water. It's all sedimentary rock. And by definition, sedimentary rock is either laid down either it's sediment, either by wind or water, and water is far more likely. So everything from the Cambrian layer to the top was laid down by the Genesis flood. So everywhere on the face of the earth, you can see evidence for a Genesis flood, and they claim there's no evidence. So please, It's clearly, it's what's called basement rock, and I'll show you photographs of it. No. Now, I'll show you some photographs of basement rock from Grand Canyon. I'll show you a lot of slides. So, we'll talk about that when we talk about the flood. The point I'm making here is this geological column is the evolutionist's best evidence from the fossil record, but it does not support his theory. And in fact, after 160 years of research, this actually destroys evolution. No transitional links. In fact, here's the, the results of the fossil record. There's abrupt appearance of life. No transitions. Abrupt appearance. Abrupt appearance is in the Cambrian. In fact, even the evolutionist calls it the Cambrian explosion. All of a sudden you have all of this life. The Cambrian explosion. That's their word. Cambrian explosion. Secondly, there's no simple life forms. Very complex organisms in that Cambrian layer. Very complex. No transitional forms. Fourthly, some of those inconsistencies I told you about. Uh, inconsistencies in terms of fossils. For example, in a Jurassic layer, you, you can find fossils that shouldn't be in a Jurassic layer because they're not supposed to be there. They're supposed to be earlier. You have layers that are out of sequence. You have layers that are missing. All these inconsistencies. These are the facts. There's persistence of kinds. In other words, the fossils that you see in the fossil record are not any different than creatures you find today. And when we talk about the Genesis Flood, I'll give you more on this, and I'll also show you that uh, fossils aren't formed today in general. So it takes special conditions even to form fossils. Catastrophic. So this is the results of the fossil record, and as a result of all of these indicators, uh, it basically destroys evolution. Evolutionists have come up with another theory that you might hear, punctuated evolution. Have you heard of it? Because they recognize these persistence of kinds, and what they that theory basically says, well, you see these organisms in this rock layer, and, you know, this rock layer took place over long periods of time, and then all of a sudden, uh, evolution just kind of went crazy, and now you have new creatures in a different layer, punctuated evolution, because that's what the fossil record indicates. It doesn't show the gradual transition forms, no transitional forms. Yeah, it has little tags. I was created by God. <laughs> <laughs> so, why aren't there the same things in the Genesis flood? Say that again. Why aren't the same? Well, because... 
Well, our interpretation would be that what you see in the geological column is what you would expect with a gigantic flood. And I'll show you that when we get... Yeah, we'll talk about that when we get to the flood. I just want to give you the creation part. Conclusion, fossil record destroys evolution. And it supports creation science. And unfortunately, we don't have time to get into mathematics. What I was going to do is give you from probability... If you do studies in terms of probability, the, the numbers just don't work out to support evolution. Probability of protein molecules forming into cells, protein and all the other... Yeah, they're virtually impossible. So from the laws of probability, based on their assumptions, in other words, based on what they would say took place, mathematics disproves against it. We don't have time to look at that. There's other destroying evidence that's the main one. Fossil record, mathematics. There's scientific evidence, and, and basically the fossil record supports creationists, as I already said. And there's also very direct evidence for creation that we can use. And the main area is from evidence from design. But let me give you some, uh, just briefly, evidence from design I've said that the science of microbiology has kind of just recently blossomed, and your husband's a microbiologist, right? Yep, PhD. So he could give this lecture. Well, microbiology basically has given so much evidence against evolution and evidence of design. So argument from design, everywhere you look, you see complexity. Complexity everywhere. And supposed uh, simple life forms, if you do study on bees, for example, they are amazingly complex, a hive, and they work together. It's kind of an amazing thing you can study. Everywhere you look, even a single cell is extremely complex. Darwin, uh, they didn't have sophisticated microscopes then, so a single cell to him was just massive protoplasm with a nucleus. Very simple. That's why Behe titles his book Darwin's Black Box, because like a television, you look at a television and you see the screen there and it's just a black box, and you don't know what makes it work, but if you want to look, you you know take the back off and then you see how complex it is. Well, Darwin could only see the outside. That's why he calls this book Darwin's Black Box. And what Behe does is he goes inside on the microbiological level and within any given, any cell, and by the way, a cell is the basic building block of all life forms, plant and animal. So every animal is made of cells. The human body has trillions of them. And every cell is extremely complex. And in Behe's book, he gives many examples of how you have complex machines. And any engineer knows that a machine, you have to have all of the components working right all together at the same time. You can't have them come together in stages for them to work. Behe uses the illustration of a mousetrap with, I think, five parts. And he calls it irreducible complexity. You have to have all five parts in the right configuration, or the mousetrap doesn't work. So also, in every cell, you have all these components that are like machines. 
You have conveyor belts. You have like highways. You have things that work are working all the time like machines, so complex. In fact, Behe and also an unbeliever by the name of uh, Michael Denton, in fact, Michael Denton says that man has not created anything as complex as one single cell. So anything that man has created, like a computer, what's the likelihood of a computer self-organizing itself? Well, life is far more complex than that. And these are just examples of very complex molecules, DNA molecule, which is a whole thing in itself. We can talk about that, RNA. Mitochondrion is a whole energy system with many components. ATP molecule, I don't even know what half of these are, polysaccharides, cyclic AMP, all of these basically tell us that one single cell is more complex than anything man has ever come up with. There's Behe's quote, that the cumulative result shows with piercing clarity that life is based on machines, machines made of molecules. And that cell, unlike a computer, man has not made a computer that can reproduce itself, that cell reproduces itself millions of times every day. Here's Michael Denton. Molecular biology has shown that even the simplest of all living systems on Earth today, bacterial cells, are exceedingly complex objects, far more complicated than anything built by man. That's your evidence for design on a biological level. And we could talk about DNA. I've got a whole two-hour thing on DNA that we don't have time to look at. So the conclusion... Evolution, the positive evidence that uh, the evolutionist supplies is superficial. And there are better explanations for the same data. Real science, like paleontology, uh, geology, actually destroys, and even physics, like second law, destroys the theory of evolution. In terms of creation, science supports intelligent design, which points to a creator. And science supports a biblical worldview and does not support the secular humanistic worldview that's based on evolution. There's DNA. We talk about it. It's a whole library in a molecule. In fact, like I said, DNA is analogous to a software in a computer. It has all of the information needed for the functioning of your computer. And so also uh, the DNA molecule has all of the information that specifies all of the characteristics of all creatures. All the characteristics, more info stored than in any other known system. Just one molecule. Skip down to the physics category there. This is from physics, the last category there. There's what's called the second law thermodynamics and I'm going to try and simplify it for you, but essentially it's a, an irreversible tendency of things to unwind or things to degenerate or things to, that fall apart. You can see it. It's called entropy, which is just a measure of that amount of degeneration. Henry Morris says, In any physical change that takes place by itself, the entropy always increases. In other words, the tendency in the negative always increases. In other words, if you measure the decline, it's always increasing. So there's more decline, basically. You can see it. 
you clean your house and you leave it meticulously clean, everything in order, and you go on vacation and you come back in two weeks, nobody was there, locked the place, no kids, nothing. What do you have? <laughs> Dust. Dust and everything else degenerated to some extent. Food in the refrigerator degenerated, you know. So you observe this all the time. We see this in every environment. In, in fact, the second law impacts every science, basically. Biology, physics, chemistry, every area. Like I said, how is life possible? It's impossible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Here is a description by Sears and Zemansky, and it's a physics book. In fact, it was my college text, college physics text. But it's pretty easy to understand. It's a description of the second law of thermodynamics down here at the bottom. He says, thus, heat always flows spontaneously from a hotter to a colder body. Doesn't go the other way. Gases always seep through an opening spontaneously from a region of high pressure to a region of low pressure. Doesn't go the other way. In other words, you can't put toothpaste back into the tube. <laughs> Gases and liquids left by themselves always tend to mix. They never unmix. Rocks weather and crumble. They don't gather together. Iron rusts. People grow old. So we are under the effects of second law. These are all examples of irreversible processes that take place naturally in and only one direction and by their one-sidedness express the second law of thermodynamics. That's a good description, I think. And this law has been verified everywhere that we have observed in the universe. That's the point. This goes totally, and, and this is one of the most fundamental laws of physics. This goes directly against the idea of things organizing, things developing, things progressing, things degenerate, just as we see as the Bible describes. So the second law, it's an irreversible tendency to unwind, or another way of describing it, it's a movement from organization to disorganization. That's you're leaving your house after cleaning it and coming back in two weeks, less organized, more dust. The law of decay, in other words, everything de decays, rots, particularly biological things, but other things as well. And if you want to copy these down, uh, the Bible speaks of this happening, Isaiah 51.6. In fact, just jot down Isaiah 51.6. We want to look at Romans 8. Somebody look up Romans 8. Let's read that one. This is a New Testament description of the second law of thermodynamics. Now, obviously, this is not a physics text, but what Paul is describing is, in fact, what the whole universe is subjected to. And notice it's a biblical worldview. It is subjected by someone that subjected it. And when we get to Genesis 3, we'll see who subjected the creation. You got it, Connie? You hear that? The creation, in other words, all of nature was subjected to what? Frustration or degeneration, you could even say? Not by its own choice. Not by its own choice. In other words, not independently. And that's God. That's the curse. Genesis 3. Keep reading. 
Okay, there's a future where God is going to reverse the second law of thermodynamics. There's a restoration of the creation. That's the biblical worldview. God's going to change the laws of nature. And by the way, this I would say the second law of thermodynamics, God introduced it at the fall of man. What's the first law? Conservation of mass and, mass and energy. Which basically says you can't create new matter. Only God did that. And you can't destroy it. You can transform it. You can change it. But you can't destroy it. That's the first law. That's right. If you want to chart it, this is what evolution requires. Organization, or this chart, an increased degree of order over time. And they say from uh, inorganic particles to single-cell organisms, multi-cell organisms, invertebrates, vertebrates, people. In other words, progression, advancement. The second law says the degree of order at one time was higher, and now it's on a basic trend downward, basic trend in nature. And the evolutionists don't have an answer to the second law of thermodynamics. This is just a simple illustration of the second law. If you have a stairway here and you build a little pyramid of ping-pong balls over time, in fact, you don't have to even do anything but just over time, what's going to happen to those ping-pong balls? You have an organized structure, and over time, any tiny disturbance is going to just cause disorganization of that structure, and these things are going to bounce down, and they're going to just kind of randomly spread in the room at the bottom. Evolution says you have these random particles in the bottom, on the floor in the room, and given enough time, they kind of just come together, they jump these steps, and they organize. Does that ever happen in nature? That doesn't happen. Another illustration, the evolutionist would say, if you have all of the parts in this junkyard of an automobile, just given enough time, what would you expect in evolution? Well, after maybe a million years, you might get a Model T. More time, you might have, after 10 million years, maybe a nice Lamborghini. <laughs> okay. Here's the conclusion. The myth of evolution. Michael Denton, he's an unbeliever. This is a conclusion of a book that he wrote. The book that he wrote is called Evolution in Crisis. He writes as a microbiologist in microbiology. This is the conclusion of most microbiologists today, and particularly this unbeliever by the name of Michael Denton. He's honest. He hasn't become a creationist. But, he says, ultimately, the Darwinian theory of evolution is no more nor less than the great cosmogenic myth of the 20th century. It's taught as fact in the public schools. Well, you might say, well, why do people hold on to it if, in fact, this is what science says? This is what science says. Okay? Well, there's at least two reasons. Number one, evolution is man's best explanation that leaves God out. There's nothing else. And why do you want to leave God out? Because if there is a God, and if God is creator, then all men stand accountable to him, and unbelieving man does not want to give an account. He wants to push God as far away as possible. That is the only reason why people believe in evolution. It's not because of the evidence. It's not because of science. You can't stress that too much. 
We're getting to the end here. I've given you a little bit of attacks from theology and history. I gave you the attacks from science. We looked at creation versus evolution, and the evidence supports creation. There's a theory within the church, within Christianity, it's called theistic evolution. And what theistic evolution basically is in its simplest form, and there's different variations of it. Uh, What's real popular today is progressive creationism. It's a form of theistic evolution. It combines evolution with the idea of a creator. In other words, God used to some extent evolution in his creation. Most people in the church assume and believe that God is creator, but they're intimidated and have not heard this evidence that I've given you and have believed the propaganda of the evolutionist. And the evolutionist gives the impression, oh, science has settled it, evolution is fact. Well, if science has settled it and evolution is fact, I want to believe that God is creator. Let's see if we can combine the two, and that's what theistic evolution is. But uh, the argument against theistic evolution is if evolution is a bad theory, why compromise? It's just a compromise that uh, doesn't work. And there's no evolutionist that accepts theistic evolution. It's only a compromise within the church because the church, those that believe in it, are intimidated and don't know the facts. The things I've shared with you have been researched and have come about in the last 60 or so years. And there's a lot of information. And if you want websites, I can give you a lot of good websites. Okay, we have attacks by the world in different forms. And there's lots that we could say on this. Uh, there's attacks from psychology. And this goes to everything that we said about the biblical worldview of who man is and his nature. Secular psychology today distorts everything about man because they don't have a biblical view. They don't recognize the image of God. First of all, they don't believe in God. And secondly, they don't, because you can't see it, you can't identify these very important areas of the image of God that we have identified and that Scripture supports. So the whole area of psychology, secular psychology, I think is... A wash, basically. Because you have to start with who man is, and it basically denies the fall as well that we'll look at next week. Another area, there's a tax from culture. I have that on your outline sheet there. And, and this is very evident today. Culture is attacking the divine institutions, all of them. Marriage is under attack. And you know some of the details there. Family is under attack. The family unit and the importance of it, it's the essential building block of all of culture. The biblical worldview puts a high priority with family. That's part of the creation mandate. Very important. And it's under attack. So basically all of Genesis is under attack from all of these areas today, science and other areas in the world. Okay, next week, the fall, the second major event. Kinsey, we had uh, uh, Holland open. Do you want to close for us? So we'll have the Noah Webster students close it.
Amen. Very good.